happen. When you have a chance, we can do an assessment. That's fine. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready. In the house. Yeah, there you go. In the house. You take United, I got United. <laughs> I'll, I'll introduce you first and then we'll go by Juan after that. Because I want to make sure I let people know who you are. Before, actually, I just saw a post the other day that I had made when we first met. And um, when we, you went to Regis. And on the post, I had written something along the lines of, I want to make sure to know. I want to make sure to let people know who you are. And today's episode is, is going to be part of that. Okay. Um, and the reason for that is because there's few people who are, I shouldn't say there's few people. But you meet people in this field who you know that are authentic and actually want to help um, and who are doing this because they have a desire to really make an impact on people's lives. And I think since day one, I saw that in you. Oh, thank you. And I'm sure, I, I, I mean, I'm sure from hearing your story, I definitely felt, I felt the same way. I felt like, oh, this guy's not only because you've discussed with me your lived experience, but um, just your desire to help people, how dedicated you've been. You've been here in the practice for how many years now? 30 years. 30 years. Yeah. 30 years in the field. And so tell, go ahead, I'll let you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background. Where do you want to start? So I guess... I was born... No, no. <laughs> well, honestly, actually... I was born a Cuban child. No, I, I, I want to know... Tell me a little bit about um, what your career was up to, I think you were almost 30 years old. And you had a shift in your yes. life, and then you switched into psychology. Yes. So I think that's a good place to start. What were you doing before? Well, before, well, I grew up in uh, in, in Miami, mm -hmm. especially in Hialeah specifically. Okay. So Just like me, Hialeah? Just like you. There you go. So growing up in Miami, I think it's still the same, but it was true for, for my generation for sure. We were obsessed with success especially like uh, commercial financial success because we were poor i think pe poor people share that you know they they dream of not having to worry about you know getting by they dream of being secure you know, financially secure mm -hmm. uh, and i'm part of one of the first waves of immigrants i got here in 1969 so that was a predominant value in, in the Cuban community. Mm -hmm. So my friends and I, we grew up with that mentality. You know, we got to grow up. We got to make money, buy our mothers a house, get them out of the one-bedroom apartment, you know, finally give them a good life. And that entailed making, you know, being financially successful. So I think that by far we were, like, obsessed with, with that. So that's what I did. I remember one conversation that was really, really significant in my life. One day I was going to Hialeah High and I was in, in indoor detention, which meant that I had to spend the day in the library. And as you can imagine, it was horrible. It was, it was incredibly boring to be in the library all day. It was punishment, that's why they did it. And I started flipping through this book on careers. And I got to the page that they described the career of psychology and what a psychologist did. And I swear to you, I, I knew something inside of me, this is what I am, this is what I want to be. What, what was it about what you read that told you this is the field I want to be? It's indescribable. It's just like what I read felt, I don't know, uh, 
real. It felt authentic. It felt this is what I am drawn to do. This is what I want to do. The idea of making a living doing that was was exciting. Mm-hmm. Was fascinating. So I said, well, I finally know what I want to what I want to be, right? And then at the time, I had a you know formal girlfriend. When when we grew up, you know, in Miami in general, in that time, you you got engaged when you were sixteen. You married when you were. 20. Mm-hmm. So I already had a girlfriend and she had some relatives that I really looked up to because they were successful, you know, they, they had careers, they drove a brand new Monte Carlo with leather interior. Nice. You know, I mean, yeah. they, they were big time. Uh-huh. They were big time <laughs> back then. <laughs> they highly were, they were big time. Yeah. And we were having a conversation one day. I was having a conversation with one of them that I really looked up to. And he said, you know, are you going to college after, after uh, high school? And I said, yeah. He said, what are you going to be? I said, a psychologist. And he shook his head. He just looked at me, shook his head. He said, you're crazy. I said, why? Well, he said, because do you know what a psychologist makes after he's out of school with, uh, with after four years. I had no idea, I hadn't even considered it. All I, did, all I knew was that I loved psychology. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't know. He said, $16,000 a year. I mean, at the time it was reasonable, it was just, do you know what a business major makes after f- the same four years of school? Again, I don't know. $34,000 a year. I even remember the amounts mm-hmm. to this day. So you would be a fool, he said, to go to school for the same amount of time, paying the same amount of money, and then graduate and make less than half what you would make as a business major. So I said, you're right. I mean, I was very, you know, easy to influence by, by these kind of people. I looked up to them. So guess what I, guess what I went you to? You pursued business. I went to Miami Dade North. Uh-huh. I registered for business. I was a disaster. It was a, dis- <laughs> it was a disaster. And finally, after that, I dropped out of college, but from then on, it was business. But how many, that's, that, it's funny that you say it, because I think that's happened to all of us, where you, express your passion or your desire to do something in life yes and somebody talks you out of it absolutely because it doesn't make sense that's the argument they make it's not sensible it doesn't make sense it's not practical i mean that that, that's usually the language that they use that's right so after that it was a series of what we do what my generation did we hustle you know, so I became a mortgage broker. I was in the jewelry business. I imported and exported uh, gold chains. Uh, it was a series of hustling. Yeah, you've told me a little bit about the jewelry business. Jewelry business. In terms of the characters you were yeah. involved with or the types of people that you worked with. Absolutely, yeah. But it, that was only one. I mean, then, the, you know, uh, the real estate, mortgage, uh, you know. And finally, when I, when I hit 30, the bottom fell out. The bottom fell out. I, I, I went into this deep existential depression. And 
you know, like my mind, my body, my spirit, my soul said, no, this is now who you are. This is now what you are. So what are some of the existential questions that you were asking yourself or just the dilemma that was going on from that perspective? Well, the dilemma was I have everything that, that I started off wanting. You know, I had this incredible, I was married to this incredible woman, one of the best human beings I have ever known. I mean, still today. We had worked together hard. We had bought our, you know, little condo in Hialeah. Then we 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 progressed more. We bought a house in in Westchester. You know, we we were on the trajectory. Gotcha. We were doing really well. So I had everything. I had everything that you could want, and I felt nothing. I, I felt it. I felt it was so meaningless. I didn't feel any sense of meaning about it. So that threw me into a deep depression, and I just something inside of me just couldn't do it anymore. And that's when I, I walked away from everything, from everything. What do you I mean did. by you walked away? I literally locked myself up in a, in the house in Westchester that we had bought, and for a year. I saw very few people, and I read for a year in the house. So was this part of your depression, where you, or yeah. did you purposefully isolate? Because we can isolate to study, we can isolate to pray, oh, but you no, were isolating because no, no. you were... Yeah, I was paralyzed. I was paralyzed by depression. I mean, I didn't want to see anybody. I didn't want to hear from anybody. But there's something interesting to that, which is, and I, I really believe today that sometimes out of those times come all the answers the real answers that we need i mean it is i'm not making this up this is a very common phenomenon my teacher's teacher fritz pearls who was the founder of gestalt therapy called called it that space of nothingness of confusion of paralysis he called it the fertile void the he said it's a void, void. But it's a void, he said, pregnant with possibility. And then on the spiritual realm, like St. John of the Cross wrote this very famous book called The Dark Night of the Soul. And he said, going through the dark night of the soul, that's where you find, well, in his case, he said, that's where you find God. In, in, in the case of psychology, that's where you find your identity, your meaning, your purpose. So... And I share that with people who are undergoing, undergoing it, you know, because we, you and I, we see a lot of people who the reason that they come to see us is because they're going through the, their dark night of the soul. So sometimes for the, some of them it's meaningful, you know, for some of them it means something. So for you, what did you find during your dark night of the soul? What, what meaning, what purpose did you find in that the, moment? The obvious, the, the obvious came up and said, remember that day in the library. That's what you have to do. So at that point, I went back to school. So wait, I want to rewind real quick, just because yeah. so, I need to illustrate this a little bit for, for people that are listening. You lock yourself up for a year. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what was your presentation like? What was your beard? Were you showering? Were you disheveled? What What was your appearance? I would shower occasionally. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I would shower occasionally. My my um, attire of choice 
was a black terry cloth bathrobe. Okay. <laughs> that reached all the way to the, and that's to the floor. Yeah. Actually, it's a funny story about that because I have a dear friend who lives in Mexico. And he was one of the people that would visit me very frequently, right? And during that year, he, he made it a point to visit me more because it was, he was concerned. And he told me once, you know, like, I come and spend, he used to come and spend, you know, three, four days, even a week at a time, and go back, you know, to, to Mexico to run his business. And he said, sometimes I have come and I see you in the black robe, in the sofa, reading a book. I go, I come next month, and when I come into the house, you are in the same black robe, in the same position in the, in the sofa, reading another book. Wow, there you go. And that describes it pretty much. That was the year. That was the year. That was the year. That's how I, ha and again, but I insist though, this is important because for me, it was, it was very important. Probably 90% of what I learned about human nature that I use today in therapy, uh, that I learned about spirituality, came from the things that I read that year. So it was that impactful? It was that impactful, yeah. It's deep. It's a deep journey into the soul. So th how do you... So you've had that lived experience where you've gone through a very deep depression. You yes. isolated yourself for a year. What do you tell to people who are in your same situation, who are having their quote unquote dark night of the soul? What, how do you coach them through that so that they see that they can find meaning, that this is fertile ground. This is a time that growth can actually happen because they're feeling like this is the shittiest experience they've ever had in their life. It's over even. It's Some over, people want to check out. Some people want to commit suicide. You do. You do because it's a very desperate and very painful space. You do want to check out. Because it's a space that the old answers don't work anymore. The new answers are not here yet. It's a desperate, what do you mean by space. What do you mean by the old answers? Everything that you have tried before, everything that you believed before, you know, like I got the wife that I want. I got the house that I want. I want the car that I want. Everybody respects me. Everybody admires me. And I feel completely empty. None of it gives me pleasure. You know, in, in psychology, we call it anhedonia, mm -hmm. which is one of the symptoms of depression. Nothing gives me pleasure. Nothing gives me joy. So what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? This is not supposed to happen. I'm supposed to be happy. Everybody tells me that I'm lucky. Everybody tells me that I'm supposed to be grateful. And I don't feel any of that. I feel a sense of actually ungratefulness. So what's wrong with me? I must be particularly broken. I must be particularly... So what's the point of being around? Mm -hmm. you know? And that's where the depression sets in. That's a, that's a big part of depression. That is where we have to be on the lookout, like you said, for people to to kill themselves. Mm -hmm. So that kind of hopelessness and desperation. No, definitely. A and definitely we have to. Those people are in a sense of desperation. And sometimes that desperation leads them to to suicide. Absolutely. That's, yeah, that's they don't uh, see a, uh, because they don't see. It's not that they want to die. Is that 
and this is something that is useful for people to understand. The, the, press, the, the people that commit suicide, they don't commit suicide because they want to die. They, they commit suicide because they want that life to end. And they don't see the other life coming up. You know, they're caught in that in-between space. So it's not that they don't want to live in the sense of, you know, breathing and eating. and It's not that. They don't want that to stop necessarily as much as they want the life that they are living. They want that to finish, to end, because they cannot stand it anymore. They're not, they're, it's painful to them. So again, you as a psychologist leading a group or doing individual therapy, how do you let them know that, hey, this is a time for, for growth? Well, I come from a, from a tradition in psychology that is known as depth psychology. And we believe that you don't tell people what to do. You facilitate the process of them finding their own answers. So, for example, when they are in the in the fertile void, I see myself as a as a well. First of all, the first thing that I do is tell them that they're not alone. That's important mm -hmm. because you think that you are the only person in the world experiencing that. Yeah, you feel alone. You feel isolated. You feel like nobody else has ever experienced this. Nobody else has ever felt this pain, this emptiness, this loneliness. That's right. Yeah, you don't. You feel completely and utterly alone. You feel broken. You feel that you're not as strong as other people, that you're not as, I, I don't know how to describe it, that you're, not, uh, that you're not put together well, you know, that something is defective, that, that there's something profoundly wrong with you. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that I do is to let them know that they're not alone. And the second thing that I do is that I tell them that I'm with them. So the main thing that they need is not for somebody to tell them what to do. That's actually the worst thing you can do. They need to know that you are keeping them company and supporting them and caring for them and that you're okay waiting with them until they find the answer. And that is the gift. When you find something like that, that's the gift. And then my training, my experience is, of course, we do know of ways to facilitate them doing that. That is true. That's the skill of a therapist. I mean, it's not like we don't know what to do. But my teacher says something that is very, that, that I, that I, by the way, I, had, I was very lucky. I had a very good mentor. And one of the main things he taught me is he said to me, we are like midwives. It's exactly like that. That's what we are. We know when to tell the person, breathe. We know how to tell the person, don't push yet. You know, the next contraption is going to come in a few minutes. Now push. Now breathe. We, we, because we have the skill set, we have the information, we have the education that allows us to understand that process very deeply. So we know what to do. And when you're using, just so I can better understand, when you're using the analogy of push, hold your breath, uh, breathe through it, things like yes. what, that analogy from a midwife perspective, how can you apply that to psychology? 
Well, for example, they they come with all kinds of self-defeating negative core beliefs. I am unlovable, I am I am incapable, I am ineffective. Uh, I don't know how to do anything. I'm stupid. You know, all these messages that, that people get, that we all get, and they live in the unconscious. We don't even know that they're there, but they send up, they get triggered, and they send up these feelings and emotions and thoughts. So I know how to pick up on those. I know their language. I know when I hear them. And then I reflect it back to them. And when it's appropriate, I challenge them. I say, you know, like, but not challenge them in the sense of you're wrong. You know, I challenge them in the sense of, well, you know what? Show me the evidence of that. Mm -hmm. Do you mean that you have never been successful at anything? Do you mean that really nobody has ever loved you? And they, they begin to, to become aware of them, to recognize them. But sometimes it's just a question of being a mirror to them. They say something and they, they, are, they are speaking and they are free associating and they are not even aware of what they're saying so much. And then I become a mirror to them and I show it back to them. And I repeat it back to them and I ask them to teach me and I ask them to clarify. Mm -hmm. And when they hear themselves explaining it to me, they get it. So that's the process of discovery. So again, I'm facilitating their, their emerging wisdom, their emerging answers. But again, going back to the analogy, it's their baby. It's not my baby. And, and the baby's gonna be born when the baby's gonna be born. I have to be patient, and I have to be supportive, and I have to be loving, and I have to wait. And they have to wait, and I have to wait. And then, because it's, it's, it's an organic process, you know, the answers are going to come up, but they're going to come up in their time, and we have to be patient about it, and we have to facilitate it or help them to, to, help them to get it. Yeah, I, I think that was one of the most interesting things that I experienced when I first went to therapy was, was just that. I was, found myself speaking to the person across from me, and as they were asking me questions, I was already contradicting these negative, the negative self-talk, yes. the negative beliefs. Yes. Oh, I'm a failure as a father, or whatever, whatever negative thoughts that I was feeding myself because of whatever happened in my life. Uh, so when I was going through a separation with Eva's mom, uh, I just, I, I started identifying that as a failure, and so then I labeled yes. myself as a failure of a father. And it wasn't until I went to therapy and he asked me exactly those questions. Well, tell me sometimes about when you've been good at being a father. Some of the good things about you your character as a father and as i started naming them i started realizing like i had this absolute thinking and it was very black and white yes it was either good or bad yeah i was like well no there's there's a lot of gray and there's always room for improvement but it doesn't mean that you failed and i think a lot of people carry those negative um i think a lot of people carry that negative self-perspective yes. or, or self-perception um, and it hinders them not only in the it, it hinders them in all aspects of their life, honestly, in relationships and finances and um, in applying for a job because you already have that negative self-talk uh, attached to your identity, um, which makes it 
difficult, no? It's it's very difficult. And in the case of then you in the case of people who suffer from depression, you got an added component, which is that in depression, your brain feeds you those ideas. Even if you don't, even if you didn't learn them, the brain literally manufactures them and feeds them to you, tells you everything is hopeless. There's no point. There's no point in trying. Uh, you are worthless. You are not good enough. You are weak. You're going to fail no matter what. You're going to fail no matter what. There's no hope. Mm -hmm. So imagine that on top of having learned you know, those, those values, those erroneous beliefs, now you have a, literally a chemical condition that when the chemicals are off that day, the brains begin to flood you with these feelings of inadequacy, of, uh, well, the same with anxiety, with, with fear and panic and terror. It's a lot to overcome. So how did you overcome it? Because you went through it. You had that lived experience. Yes. Which drove, you had this, you know, you were, um, I'm sorry, what did you call it again? The, what was the name of the book? The, the, the Dark Night of the Soul. The Dark Night of the Soul. You went through your Dark Night of the Soul. Yes. So how did you overcome it? I was very, very lucky. And, and I found my mentor at the time. I found him and he became my therapist. I mean, I was very lucky because, because I discovered that vocation that I had as a psychologist. I was open to therapy. I even saw it as as uh, fascinating to do. So I was one of the lucky ones that never had to fight through a resistance to go into therapy. You know, by that point, I didn't see it as oh, it's for crazy people. Is uh, you know, I don't really have a problem. Uh, I didn't have to go through that resistance first i automatically immediately went to therapy Straight and that therapy. saved my life yeah because a lot of people have to deal with the cultural barriers of yes. what therapy means or going to psychologists or psychiatrists yes. which means oh i'm crazy if i seek yes. mental health care right. um the societal perception the same right. depends on how your family views it because sometimes people your somebody's mom or dad might tell them okay no you don't need that you should no. go to the priest or go to the pastor as or just tough it out. Or just walk, yeah, tough, tough it, it out, out, tough it out. Yeah, tough it out. Yeah. So you were able to seek help immediately? Immediately. And what immediately. Kind of, well, not immediately, because you spent a year in isolation first. Well, no, I was I was in therapy during the year of isolation. Okay. Yeah. So you I was still in go. therapy during that year. What was missing was, and it's fuzzy. That year is all fuzzy because it was a true like mental breakdown. I mean, I can I'm not like <laughs> exaggerating. So it's fuzzy, you know, it's in and out, but I remember I remember those main themes, you know, in the reading, I remember all of that. And the it was and this is this is part of the world's mythology. It was literally the death of a, a not a person, but a being, uh, like, uh, you know, like it was the death of an identity 
and of a worldview and the birth of another one. And that in between time, that year, that night of the soul, it was where this new being was born with a totally different view of life, with a totally different value system, with a sense of authenticity because I was being true to my vocation. It was a rebirth. It's like, and that, that is very, you hear it all the time. You hear people born again. Well, this is what born again really means, you know, like, like in, in reality, psychologically. So I was, that, that was the, com I think that that was one of the combinations of the therapy process. Because the therapy process started when I was, I, I went into therapy, I had my first depressive episode when I was 20. Which was not easy. It was 20 and it was, I was 20 in 1978 and there was nothing. I mean, uh, you know, to put it in perspective, Prozac was the first antidepressant. And it was in the 90s when it was... 89. 89, yeah. So I, w <laughs> I, I had to deal with depression and anxiety from... 19, you know, 78 to 1989 without any, well, all of us, I mean, not me, all of us, all of us who suffer from depression, thank God I was in therapy. If not, I, I don't think, well, many of us didn't make it during that time. You mentioned that your values changed before. So you mentioned earlier that your values initially were to have the pretty wife, the home, the investment, yes. and, and move up from a capitalistic perspective. Yes. So that mentality died? That mentality died. And so what was the new value system that you developed after your depression? The Present new value, value, yeah, of course. The new value system becomes more of what kind of human being are you? You know, and seeing success in terms of are you being authentic? Are you being uh, sincere? Are you living in a way that is, that is aligned with who you are? Or are you faking it? Are you going through the world showing people your true self, your speaking your truth, or are you going through the world playing a role uh, pretending, uh, posing, that becomes a new value. So if, you're, if you are manifesting your true self as, I don't know, a stockbroker in, in, in Wall Street because that's your vacation making millions, so be it. If you are manifesting your true self as a master carpenter who has the admirations of your peers, so be it. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. If you're manifesting your true self as a, as a master plumber, that again is, is a master at his craft, mm -hmm. and people look up to you and respect you, then so be it. So the values are, are the admiration, the value, the respect is based on these other considerations, not just the car you drive. Um, but I mean, uh, that th those things, don't get me wrong, I mean, uh, I didn't become a monk or anything. Yeah. You know? It's like I continue to really like good things, fine things. I mean, they're just 
there's a lot of beautiful stuff in the world. Of course. And I would like to own a lot of it. But that has nothing, to, but I don't consider that that is any more than that it has anything to do with my identity. Those are things yeah, those that are, are nice. They're nice have. to attain. They're, they're yeah. nice to play with. Of they're, course. They're, you know, like uh, they are. But they don't, they're not, they don't say anything about who I am. Or, or what I am as a, as a person or a human being. So that's the shift. Gotcha. That's the big shift. Why do you think so many of us, because you mentioned earlier that you had this sense of, or this need to prosper, yes. to provide for your mom, to possibly buy her a house. And I feel like there's a lot of young Hispanics who feel that pressure yes. um, where they, they're growing up in the lower socioeconomic class. Um, yes. They find themselves yes. either going to school. They might be the first graduates of their family. Yes. And so they feel that need to, to find success, you know, and, and uh, like I, and I use air quotes because success is such a subjective term. It's very subjective. And, and it's really sad because I have a word of warning to, to the, the young people that were or the kids and the young people that were like, like what I was. And that is be very careful because uh, something terrible happened because of those values, which was I internalized those values. So I strove for them, you know, buying my mom the house and finally having her be whatever, uh, comfortable in the way that I, f but this is the trap, is in the way that I was thinking and I was defining how she would be comfortable. How she would be comfortable. Without asking her. But this is the try without asking her. Yeah. No, I assume. Of course. That this is what she wanted. Now, in the course of doing that, I felt at some point that I failed doing that. So I became embarrassed and ashamed to the degree that I would avoid seeing her. Because being in her presence would make me feel inadequate. It would make me feel, well, you, you know, you, you didn't live up to it. You didn't live up to being a good son. Because I had defined being a good son in those terms. As a result, I neglected her. You know, and what she really wanted was nothing of she didn't care about a house. She didn't care. She wanted my company. She wanted her son to be with her. So I ended up denying her a big chunk of happiness because I had internalized those values. So, so to those kids and to those young men, I would say to them, be careful. Check in with <laughs> check in with your people. Ask I, I want to call my mom right now. Ask them. <laughs> I swear. Because you could fall onto that trap. Yeah. I mean, don't assume that the societal values that 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 we internalize mm -hmm. are exactly what they want. I mean, these were loving. My family was a, a family of loving, simple people with simple needs. I developed more needs. I developed higher expectations. They didn't need those things. They needed me. They needed me to be around. They needed me to have to eat with them. They needed me around for Nochebuena. That's what they wanted. They didn't care about my status. They didn't care about 
how much money I had. I care. I turned it into a do or die thing that determined my value. So again, we have to be very, very careful. Listener be warned. Yes. yes. <laughs> no, but it's interesting because you just said that the societal values that you internalized, you know, uh, I guess hindered your relationship with your mom. But if you think about it, this applies to everybody. The societal values that we often internalize hinder our relationship with ourselves. With ourselves. Because then we start comparing ourselves to these values that we're that we've internalized that we shouldn't have even brought in to begin with. Because had we really had a solid value system and really looked at life as something much more than just what we attain. Yes. Um, I'll give you an example. Like this, what we're doing right now, this podcast, these cameras, these mics. This is an excuse for me to sit down across from people and have conversations. Right? Why? Because I think life makes it so that it's difficult for me to do this normally, and I don't know why. I know. This I is, don't know This why. is the longest conversation we have ever had. I agree with you. Because you're, we cross each other, and you're always busy. You're, you, you're gonna, you're on your way to doing. Something. Yeah, exactly. And I'm on my way to seeing a client. And yeah. this, this is the longest conversation we've ever had. It's true. And so, this, but people see this, and they see this room, and they're thinking, "Oh, how long till you reach this many viewers, or how long till you monetize, or how yeah. long?" And for me, I'm. Right now, I'm just, I got goosebumps. I'm just enjoying it. Of course. I'm just enjoying this is, it. This is life. Right? This is what life really is. This is what human contact really is. Yeah. Why do you think we've drifted so far from these conversations? Like, because right now, life feels so slow right now. I'm talking to you. I'm listening to, to you know, to your lived experience, to, to your thought process, to how, um, to your worldview. Why do you think so many of us have drifted away from 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 this well I mean we're being bombarded by it I mean look at uh, we're surrounded by it we're being bombarded with before it used to be billboards and television and radio now we're being bombarded with social media we're being bombarded with we're being bombarded with being told that we are basically the message is really simple and direct we are not okay being who we are we're lacking and now suspiciously of course the people telling us that we're lacking something want to sell it to us we're lacking something we need to take a course we need to take a seminar we need to uh, we need a guru we need to do yoga be on a diet be vegan uh, you know, work out, I mean, and then maybe you will be good enough. You need to look like this and act like this and dress like this and drive this and live here. And then maybe, maybe, maybe mm -hmm. you'll feel better. About you're going to be, well, actually, maybe you're going to be a worthy person. <laughs> 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 maybe. Yeah. And so they sell you that. And so Absolutely, of course. We were just talking about it. She was, um, Josie was in the room and she was looking for, I guess, a sound to create some sort of TikTok or reel or whatever. And she's like, I just got sucked in. She said she was looking for one sound and that she just got sucked into the app and yeah. found herself drifting for like 10 minutes. And she literally, 
all I heard was she put the phone down. She goes, ah. And I was like, what happened? She's like, this thing just wants to suck you in. I want to get one thing done. And I drifted for 10 minutes and I didn't even realize it. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, these these things are done. They chase me. They chase me. (laughs) In the morning, I I take a look at, you know, briefly. I try to make a brief through, you know, my Instagram feed. And my favorite stores and my favorite providers of you know uh, glass frames and they, they appear they chase me and they tempt me and they show me stuff and and it works it works because sooner or later when i see it three four times i buy it <laughs> I, I give it because you have no choice right well they plant it in your brain they plant the image in your brain and the message and again, the message is the same. The message is, in the, the, the images that they feed you is, you're going to be okay if you buy this. You buy this. You're going to be okay if you take my course. You're going to be okay if you read my book. It's, it's, that's the message, which by default says, you're not okay now. But you might you're, be. You're going to be, maybe, <laughs> if, <laughs> if you buy my course. Exactly. That's once you get to this point, you're going to be okay. But you need me to take you there. I'm the one that can take you there. So you got to buy my stuff and I will take you. But of course, when I get there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, yeah, but this is There's level two. two. That's 2.0. Yeah. <laughs> and, and now I have another version. <laughs> and then there's an elite members course. There's an elite and, members yeah. course that you should aspire to. Um. So, and so I just want to say that this is going to be the first of a couple just because this has to be an ongoing conversation. We're in the same building, Juan. We're in the same office. We're roommates. So we, we have to make this happen yeah, a little bit more often. Want, really? um, but I'm glad, I'm definitely glad we sat down today and don't worry, I'm not, I'm not finishing this right now. Um, but I wanted to get back to, to depression, because I know you have some philosophies on depression that yes. they are a little bit different from what's traditionally spoken about. Yes, um, and you've you've mentioned it to me how when you're depressed, the easy answer is to do all the things that you should do: wake up, take a shower, yes, get around other people, exercise, move your body, eat right, um, go to therapy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then the depression actually tells you to do the exact opposite. It's the opposite. So what do you say to somebody who comes to you with all those issues and is living with depression? What's some of the advice that you give them or what's some guidance that you give them in terms of what to expect? The first thing I do is, again, I offer them companionship. Mm -hmm. I I offer them understanding. And I let them know. Well, it's interesting because the first thing I have to, to go through is the... The, the first thing I need to try to alleviate is the guilt that they feel for not doing those things. It's, it's an awful position to, to have a condition, you know, a, a, an illness, that by definition, and this is just medical facts, by definition, depression is, an, is a... Is a disorder of energy it saps the organism of energy right like literally your brain 
takes away your ability to move, your ability to, to, to think straight. Even your desire to move, the motivation to move. Yeah, because you don't have any energy. Yeah. You, you, don't have, you have absolutely no energy. Mm-hmm. So to say to a person in that state, okay, get, why don't you get out of bed and go jogging? <laughs> it's really the most cruel thing that you could say to them. Yeah. You know, like the solution to your problem is get out of bed and go jogging. Okay, so that's like literally the same as. But I'm gonna play devil's advocate here because, uh, well, because we do know that if they do exercise and move their bodies, they will feel better or they could over time. Sure. So then what's your your rebuttal? Well, you have to wait for the person for enough energy. It's like like lighting a fire. You need kindle, right? Uh So you have to wait for the person to have enough energy to get out of bed and make it to our office and then make it again and make it again and make it again. And then they discover that getting the day that they got out of the house, they feel a little bit better. So the encouragement is, okay, get out of the house a little bit longer. And you build on that energy because that energy picks up on itself. Mm-hmm. It, it creates a momentum. I mean, that's a given, you know, in, in human physiology, you know, like motion begets more motion and rest, you know, it begets more, more rest. That's, that's just a, the, the, the dynamics of the human body. But again, it's like the example again of the, of the birth. We have to be patient. You know, the person shows up and says, you know, oh, I went, you know, I got out of the house and went to the supermarket. Mm-hmm. I celebrate that with them. But then I don't follow that up by saying, yeah, but now. This is what you got to do next. Yeah. yeah. No, that's enough. That's yeah. enough. And I celebrate it with them and I reinforce it. Mm-hmm. And I, I say to them, so tell me how you did it. What happened? What was different? And then that's, the, I mean, we fall into, again, the, the previous conversation that as they are explaining it to me, they're listening to it. Mm-hmm. And they're picking up on the signs. And they get encouraged. And then they do it again. And then, sure, when, when they accumulate enough energy, that's when the advice becomes real. Because then it's, it's, not, it's never that it was not good advice. Don't get me wrong. It is. We know for a fact that exercise is one of the best soothing activities for depression. The day that I exercise is a completely different day than the day that I don't exercise. Mm-hmm. I feel clearer. I sleep better that night. I mean, all of that is absolutely true. Don't get me wrong. It's not that it's wrong advice. It's that it's being given at the wrong time. You have to wait. You have to be patient. And in that in, in that wait, what people want to hear the most is you understand them. You know, you 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 understand them. You're not in a hurry. Uh, you support them. You're not uh, disappointing in them. Which is, but then again. 
that's easier said than done too. It's a very complex situation because on the other hand, I also understand the people that have to live with a depressed person. Depression is contagious. So uh, if you live with a depressed person long enough, you begin to get depressed. Now, who wants to do that? I mean, you can love a person <laughs> very much, but you don't want to be depressed. Of course not. So here's the dilemma. It's, it's an awful conflict. And this is why people get so desperate. We know that we do that to people. Mm -hmm. we're, we're not stupid. Mm -hmm. Actually, depressed people are depressed because they're pretty aware of what's going on. You know, they're, 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 they're intimately aware of the reality of life, and the reality of life basically is depressing. Mm -hmm. That's why we can get depressed. Yeah. So we're in tune with the, you know, the core reality of life. That's why we're depressed. So we're very good at perceiving what's really going on, and we know. So imagine, imagine this. Imagine, imagine how much you love Eva. Mm -hmm. Imagine you feeling that you are the cause of her sadness, that what you are, that you cannot control, mm -hmm. is going to make her depressed. Oof. You imagine living with that? That's heavy. That's a heavy burden to carry. It's a heavy burden. And yet you can't you can help it mm -hmm. because it's an illness. Mm -hmm. There's nothing you can do about it. So then the choice is you alienate yourself to protect her, but then she says, my father is alienating himself, which affects her. You expose her to you, knowing that you're going to make her depressed. Because you're depressed. Because you're depressed. Mm -hmm. And then in the middle of that dilemma, that's why in, it's very common for depressed people that are considering suicide to make the statement, they are going to be better off without me. Mm. Because one possible solution is, okay, like, I don't want to hurt the people I love. I can't stand living like this. If I leave them, I hurt them anyways. So you know what? Let me just check out completely. Let me check out completely and they will get over it and they will begin a new, a new life without me. And they, that's the, the quote unquote, that is a very famous statement, even in suicide notes. Mm -hmm. They will be better off without me. And that thought comes in and it's very tempting. It's tempting. Yeah. It's very persuasive because you don't find a way out. Mm -hmm. And then there is the pain of you knowing these people need to protect themselves, but you sense how they become more and more distant from you. They have to, and you know, is is you know they're doing it for their self-preservation at some level. I want them to, but we're. To, I mean, it's painful. Yeah. So how have you managed it? Because you've told me personally, and I don't know if you mind me getting personal at all. Yeah. That you you mentioned to me like, in your home with your wife, who's also named Eva, that you can't even talk about it. Like even though you're going through it, that you I can't. You because don't I don't tell wanna, her. I don't want to make them depressed. I don't want to contribute to their sadness. Is that a rule that you guys established together? How did you come up with that? Um, no, it's not, no. We, <laughs> <laughs> we didn't really cooperate no. coming up with that rule. It pretty came. It pretty much came up organically. Okay. Yeah. As a means From of keeping your relationship. Years. It, look, it's years. It's years of you know, dealing with a kind of, you know, gloom and sadness and, and it's heavy, it's heavy. 
it's heavy for her. It's heavy for, you know. My kid, not so much because I do, when I feel down, I do, you know, like keep my distance. You know, like I'm in the house and I let them know that I'm there. But when I know that I'm, you know, displaying, because it's something that you can hide. You, mm-hmm. you, you can't help it. I mean, it's in everything. It's in your body posture. It's in your facial expression. It's in your eyes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's not normal for a person to be totally debilitated and have to take, you know, like five naps during the day and then be agitated and awake all night. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not, you, you can tell. You can tell the, in the atmosphere, you can tell something is wrong. So what advice do you give to your to your son? Like, what do you tell him in terms of what you're experiencing? Or I I wait for him to get curious. Like one of the times, one of the, t- oh, the there was a time that he f- when he first noticed that I take medication, he asked me once, why, why why do you take medication? And I and I to to the to the simplest degree possible, I told him, well, I have depression, and you know the medication. This is the way it works. And it's funny because he, the first response that he got, he had was, am I going to get it? <laughs> I said, well, I don't think so. Yeah. It does run in families. Mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely inherited. But then I told them, but don't be afraid mm-hmm. because if you do get it, I am completely ready to help you through to it to deal with it yeah you are not gonna have to suffer you know what other people you know what i suffer and other people suffer so don't don't be scared mm-hmm. don't don't even think about it mm-hmm. if it happens i'm gonna know it happens and i'm completely completely ready yeah for it extremely capable of helping you extremely through it extremely capable yeah not only at all levels through yeah through an at educational level. level through lived experience yes yes completely ready so, so I do that when I know that my affect and my mood, you know, is, you know, I'm broadcasting it like I, and again, you know, again, I like to be very sincere because that keeps me, that keeps me alive is also to the degree that I can. See, this is the other thing too. Like I have bipolar depression. But bipolar depression type two because I'm very exotic and you know, it wasn't enough for me. <laughs> I'm to exotic. Have the regular type of you know, yeah. I got, I'm very refined. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> kind of sewer. Depression kind of sewer. Yeah, I don't want like I, yeah, I don't want the regular depression. That was not good enough for me. One of the features of bipolar type two is that instead of mania, you experience what you call hypomania, right? So that when when I go into an episode like that, when I'm in that state, it's very hard to know that you are in that state. Right? Describe why. Well, your brain tells you this is normal. This is the way it is. Yeah, this know? is great. Actually, hypomania is like a, it's a well, yeah, and and you know, and you you are convinced like mm-hmm. these people are wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they have it in for you. <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean? They, they don't understand. You know, you're trying to make them see, you know, the correct way of living and they don't get it. Of course, all of that is a delusion. Now, after so many years of therapy and meditation, there's a part of me that doesn't buy it. There's a part of me that is observing the whole thing going on and get, and, and knows, no, 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 this is, I'm hypomanic right now. Mm-hmm. So that awareness helps me when I can, when I can, to catch it 
and to then you know remove myself and then exercise meditate you know what i mean do what i can do the skills that i know that i can to to overcome but it's not an easy life man it's not an easy life and it's not an easy life for anybody so but at the same time we bring a lot to the table for it too you know i mean by definition you know depressive people are are very especially bipolar people are very creative when they go very creative very creative mm-hmm. yeah when they go on that, that stage to the degree that there was uh, th- th- there's a magnificent doctor she was one of the pioneers of bipolar redfield and she's one of the first people that inspired me because she was one of the first professionals that was courageous enough to say i deal with it yeah and she wrote a book called touched by fire mm-hmm. and that's exactly what it is and she she draws examples through history of creative people you know like uh, leonardo da vinci uh, van gogh is a very famous example picasso hemingway and in those periods i mean we suffer a great a great deal they suffered a great deal. Some of them didn't make it. You know, Van Gogh committed suicide. Hemingway committed suicide. Some of them didn't make it. But the reference to touch by fire is that's what it feels like. You know, the fire of, yeah, I mean, you you light up mm-hmm. and you are capable of producing this amazing things. Then you pay the price With the, on, the, on the other cycle. Yeah, when you drop into a deep depression. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But... Depressed people, what they put out in the world is, is beautiful. And which is interesting for people who cannot perceive beauty all the time. It's incredible the amount of beauty that they, they put out in the world. And I think I know why. It's because for you guys... Don't say me, because I might be. I'm. You're talking to me, <laughs> and, and I'm. I'm thinking about my life you're, you're and my clicking, family. You're, you're clicking at the, the, the I've DSM. Never, oh yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Check, check, check. Um, yeah. That's so, familiar. That's familiar. Yeah, That's familiar. I mean, from a genetic standpoint. Okay, so I take that. Yeah. Back. yeah. So for people who are lucky <laughs> that don't have depression, I take I'm it. Offended back. now. You're well, not going to include me in this. Well, oh, no, no. The no, hell. No. But listen, I mean, we, <laughs> you're discriminating right now, huh? I mean, when you have a chance, we can do an assessment. That's fine. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready. In the house. Yeah, there you go. In the house. You take United, I got United. <laughs> <laughs> no, for you, it's professional courage. Oh, you thank know? you. I appreciate it. No, I'm Mountain Dew in my eyes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and let me see, because I... Actually, I'm going to... Like I said, this is going to be part one of of multiple actually i want to do this whichever you want i want to always i definitely want to do this often sure um for multiple reasons yeah one is again like i think your lived experience i think the more people hear it the more people will relate to somebody who's a professional and who's openly discussing like yes what they've lived yes how they've overcome and how that has become their not only their vocation but their passion Yes. For helping the people around them. Number two, I want to talk briefly about the Adaptive Center. Okay. Um, so the Adaptive Center is the name of your of your practice. Yes. And it is an IOP, which is an intensive outpatient practice. Yes. Can you describe briefly what 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 is IOP or the intensive outpatient program? 
Intensive outpatient is a, is a category of, of treatment. So what we do at Adaptive Center is that we treat, we specialize in depression, anxiety, and addiction. And the reason that I, I, I chose to specialize in that specifically is because I think, well, first of all, they're very interrelated. Depressed people often seek to medicate themselves with substances, and a lot of them become addicted in the process. But also addicted people experience a great deal of depression and anxiety, sometimes because they always had it and they were medicating, but also because substances can make you depressed and anxious, even if you don't suffer from anxiety and depression. So, so interlinked that I found, you know, it's a disservice to treat one Without the other. Without the other one. It's not the complete treatment that the person needs. Do some of your patients just come in and only have depression, severe depression, anxiety, or yes. do all of them yes. have substance no, abuse? No, no, no. We treat them. We, we treat each one of them. We're licensed to treat both. So we're a mental health you know, treatment center, and we're an addiction treatment center. We have licenses for both. Okay. So a person can come in because they're depressed. A person can come in because they're anxious. Or a person can come in only because they they have substance abuse issues. Mm-hmm. What you find again in the, what you find is that it's rare to find someone that has not experienced the other one. Mm-hmm. Even again, not because they are necessarily depressed, not because a depressed person is an addict. A lot of them are not, but you do experience some problems. And how does IOP work? How often do they come in? What are those sessions like? So IOP is a step down from residential, which is when people send you away, you stay away a month in a a hillside by a brook, you know. Mm -hmm. It's not that because I worked in, in this field for 30 years, like I told you before, and my my opinion, my view is that people need to get, to learn and get the skills that they need to live with depression, with anxiety, with addiction in the same place where they will be asked to apply those skills. If I take you and I lock you up somewhere and I make it really comfortable for you, you are not going to experience those things. Because you don't have all the stressors from everyday life. Exactly. Yeah, so you can't. You have nowhere to apply all the skills that you're learning in group therapy or individual Correct. therapy. Correct. And at, at the other end, seeing a therapist once a week may not be enough when you are in that specific phase of, of acuteness, you know, of, of that, that is very acute and, you, and you're really, really in trouble. That comes later. So what we do is that we have three groups. IOP is composed of three groups a week of three hours each. I mean, they're not as long as it sounds because we take breaks, it's a lot of interactions. One individual session uh, every week and one visit with psychiatric care, Mm -hmm. you know, like yourself. In the beginning, once a week for medication management, once the medication, you know, we we know that it works, the Mm -hmm. person is doing well with them, that can be dropped to once a month, you know, just to check in and make sure that everything is okay. And how long is a program as a whole typically? Typically, the typical person comes for about, I would say, six weeks, mm-hmm. IOP. 
and then they drop the frequency. So they can maybe drop the frequency instead of three times, they start coming two times, then they start coming one time. And one thing that we have created is that for some people, they are fearful or just plainly not comfortable with the, the typical IOP structure. So what we have done is that we have built an IOP program that is based completely on individual therapy. So they get the same intensity as the regular IOP, but the entire thing is composed of individual sessions, coaching, directly coaching in the, between the sessions, and the, the medical care. So why do you, why do you, why would you create a program that way if we just finished discussing <clears throat> how important it is to have human interaction? What if these people are just isolating themselves and they're not getting the experience of group therapy where you start learning that you're not alone, um, where you hear other people going through a similar situation and you can get feedback from other people within the group? How does that benefit those, those individuals? Is it just a lifestyle, just a preference? <clears throat> Is the lifestyle, is the flexibility, mm. because some people say, you know, I, I just can't. Gotcha. I don't have the time because mm. I work and then I need time with my family. Mm. And the times, you know, even though we were very generous with the time, we offer a lot of times. Mm. We offer four, four days, uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, four days a week, groups four days a week and individual sessions are scheduled individually with the, the therapist, so they're very flexible. But there are people that just can't do it, mm -hmm. or they prefer to do it in a more flexible way. And then the human interaction, instead of being in a group, becomes one-on-one -on -one with us, because like I said, between, between sessions, we have two, three sessions per week instead of one, and then in between sessions, we're always communicating with each other at also at crucial times. Some people like that, like on their way to a job interview when they're feeling the anxiety. Oh, we connect. Yeah, so you can coach them through that moment to exactly. help them exactly. retrieve some of those skills and say, oh, yes. what, what are some things you should be doing right now yes. that can help you get through this anxiety-provoking exactly. situation. Exactly. And they are, anyways, they are welcome to come to the group. Mm. I mean, we have people that have been coming to, to the groups six years, mm. and they still come every week. They drop in, you know, they, they, yeah. they drop in, like you said, for the fellowship, for the support. Mm -hmm. But some people like to feel also that they are completely free to choose. To, to dictate their treatment, to customize their treatment to their own really individual needs. So we created the two, the two programs. And I think that's where medicine is moving as a whole to patient-centered care, where the yes. patient dictates the plan of care or the patient's part of the plan of care yes. as opposed to um, this hierarchy of the doctor speaking down to the patient and telling them, follow these instructions and this is how you'll get better. That's right. No, now we're including the patient and saying, hey, how... How do you think we could help one another? How can this plan work? Does yeah. this work for well, you? Without, without their cooperation. Yeah, you have nothing. You have nothing. Again, yeah. you, need, you need them to listen to you when you say, you know, like push, don't push, yeah. wait for the control. Yeah. And if they don't trust you, 
That's exactly. I used to talk to the students at UM so much about this. I've told them you could be the best clinician in the world. Yeah. You could develop the best plan of care, but if you have not established rapport or gained trust from your patient, you've written a script, a beautiful plan of care, and just that's right. Throwing it out. That's right. That's all it is. So that that's huge. Establish, having establishing rapport, having trust, and um, and just having them as, as part of the person who develops that plan. Um, so again, that's the Adaptive Center. You can find them at Adaptive Center, 1411 Coral Way in Miami. Que um, mas? Oh, what's the phone number, just in case? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go, at Adaptive I, Center. I need, I need a, it's a, okay. a business call, card. Call me. Yeah. You can call. Well, you, you can go to AdaptiveCenter.net. There you go, AdaptiveCenter.net, and you can get all the information there, including uh, what insurances you take. Um, and that's all I think. I mean, I'm just I'm speaking out loud. And since this is being recorded, I'd rather say it now. I think we could probably do segments where we can kind of go through. I'm not sure, but I think we could come. Oh, there you go. He pulled out cards. <laughs> so I can see. You want to read the 800 number? He pulled out the. Oh, it's like 800 number. That's yeah. right. 1-800-988-9960 is. Uh, and it's adaptivecenter.net. And that's you can it. find them at Adaptive Center. Um, on Instagram, um, but whatever, we'll talk about it afterwards. But I think we could definitely do like segments because uh, I had a bunch of questions I had I wanted to ask you, but we just had uh, we have a I'm actually going to a hockey game right now. I haven't been to a hockey game in I don't know how long, and I think your last session the ran, Panthers, Panthers, the Panthers, yeah. So we're gonna beat traffic and drive up north. Um, so no big deal. I think it's cool that we just jumped on here either way. I think too. This, this and next time we have to talk about how Will Smith needs to go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> and why? And why? And and why society what? needs Will to go to jail. Why society needs it? Yeah, because needs now it. they're they're thinking that violence is the answer to to being yeah. insulted, to having your ego hurt. Yeah. I still think it was an act, Juan. I, I think, think so. I think it was an act, but that's that's my opinion. All right. I think he needs to go to jail. <laughs> you just want to see Will Smith in handcuffs. I want to see him in handcuffs. <laughs> the guy has... He'll get out in like five minutes. He'll bail himself out. I know, out. but he needs the experience. We need the experience as a society. You know, young kids growing up need the experience. They need to see that, hey, there's consequences yeah, to those actions. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, it, it's providing us with some entertainment, and I think that was their intention. Absolutely. So, so there yeah. you go. Oi, Juan. Thank you very Buddy, much. Buddy, as always. Always right. a pleasure, bro. Okay, talk to you soon. Bye.